Welcome to the second series of the Birmingham Lip Fest Presents podcast. We're really excited to be back for a second season and to be able to continue to connect readers and writers in the Midlands and far beyond. You can download our podcast episodes from all the places you would normally get your podcast every Thursday and follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at BHamLipFest. All of our festival events can be found on our website www.birminghamliteraturefestival.org. This week's episode brings together Birmingham-born writer and artist Jackie Morris with her longtime friend and the co-founder of the publisher Unbound, John Mitchinson. They talk about Jackie's two new books, East of the Sun, West of the Moon and The Wild Swans, using feminist fairy tales to give voice to the voiceless, the beauty of snow and how it is impossible to draw during labour. Hello and welcome. My name is John Mitchinson. I'm the publisher of Unbound, the crowdfunding publisher. Um, And I am here today with the author and illustrator, Jackie Morris. Jackie, tell us where you're, as they say, calling from. I am in my roost, my lair, uh, whatever you want to call it, which is a studio in an attic in a small and very tatty house which clings to the clifftops just outside St David's. Which is in Wales, by the way. Which is in Wales? Yes. And this, this is the room in which people who know your work may know that you both The Lost Words and The Lost Spells, the two books that you co-wrote with Robert McFarlane, but also The Unwinding, which we published last year for Unbound, and a couple of books that are coming out later on this year that we're going to talk about. Were they East of the Sun? East of the Sun and West of the Moon and The Wild Swans. And all of these were created here because 30 years ago, I came to St. David's for the weekend. And uh, I've never been able to find my way out, really. (laughs) It's a really strange place that um, some people say it it gathers flotsam and jetsam from the world. and We kind of swirl around in this little micro-environment. But I I, um, very seldom took a holiday. I used to live in Bath which is a beautiful city. And I came here for a weekend and I walked down the high street and I just got this uh, incredible, overwhelming feeling, which I now know is called Hiraith, which is that feeling of belonging. Hiraith is more a kind of homesickness. And it was, it was the homesickness was recognising that this is where I should have been always. So this is where I was going to be. I didn't want it to be a place I came to on holiday. I've, I didn't want to live my life to go on holiday a couple of times a year. I wanted to live here and I wanted to work here and I wanted to raise children here. And that's what I've done. It's amazing. And, and it's, it's, an, it's a very ancient bit of, um, a bit of the world as well, that, that Pembrokeshire coast, isn't it? It is. Amazing yeah. rocks and beautiful beaches. And you can see from your, your I think, can't you see from your um, studio window the top of St David's Cathedral in Fishguard? I can. And when the wind's blowing in the right direction, I can, I can hear um, the cathedral bells. Um, I can also see Ramsey Island, which is a very old and spiritual place, and Skoma and I can see the sea. And then if you walk up the hill behind my house, there's a long ridge of granite rock that bites out of the sea. And then down the other side, there's an old village 
that used to be inhabited years ago. It's all ruins now. There's hut circles, there's old standing stones. There's beaches where the seals come ashore to breed this time of year. There are raven's roosts, there's peregrines. I don't know why I wanted to live here, really. <laughs> Nature is all around you. You have your own menagerie of animals as well. Yeah, I do, I do. I have um, four cats that share the house with me and are destructive to many things, including the house, often to my peace of mind. But they also come for walks. They're not allowed in the studio because they're terrible critics of my work. <laughs> they like to sit on paintings and knock things over. <laughs> and then I have three dogs, one of which is Rosie, who is my daughter's dog, Ivy the Beautiful, and Pi, who is just crazy, crazy, crazy. Let's talk about the two books that are coming out in October, East of the Sun, West of the Moon and The Wild Swans. They're both really retellings of, I think they're both Hans Christian Andersen uh, tales originally, old folk tales, Norwegian folk tales, certainly. But you take the stories and you completely reinvent them, don't you? Mm, not completely. I just I change the endings, really. Yeah. I'm more so with East of the Sun um, than Wild Swans. I, I did try very hard to change the ending of The Wild Swans. Yeah, I, the plot spoiler for that one is, for some reason, at the very end of it, um, Eliza, who is the heroine of the book, is on a pyre. Um, about to be burnt as a witch, but she is rescued by her brothers arriving as swans. She then chooses to marry the prince who had sentenced her to death. So it's, I, I, I still don't understand that, really. You know, I, I wouldn't be quite so forgiving myself. But then if I had brothers who were turned into swans, I would just think, fantastic, I've got swans now, not brothers. So I wouldn't spend years of my life weaving shirts out of nettles for them. Yes, I mean, and you describe that in weaving shirts out of nettles and painful bloody fingers and painful bloody feet for, feet for stamping the nettles into fibres. Two things that strike me about the way that you tell these folk tales is that there's a lot of very strong, visceral, sensual um, writing in the books. That's one case, Eliza having, you know, shredding her fingers and stinging her fingers with nettles but it's, it's it's full of delicious they're always full of delicious foods and incredibly kind of um comforting beverages to drink and I'm, I'm just wondering both the stories having these very very strong female characters eliza in the wild swans mm. and bernine in east of the sun mm. and as you say bernine's story is she doesn't go for the leading man in the way that you would expect a female character in a folktale to go. Yeah, she goes her own way, really. She grows through the story and very much did go her own way. I was trying to write her in one direction and she had come to life so much that she refused to go where she was supposed to. And, um, yeah. So I, I have had uh, letters of complaints that the story is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> You've written this story wrong, but I'll take that. I mean, they're very powerful, I think, very powerful um, stories for any age. They work up for any age. I hope so, yes. I mean, I think the character in Wild Swans who really fascinated me is the stepmother who... I think women come out of a lot of these folk tales very badly, often. Yes. 
And you kind of rescue them in a way. I mean, the, the, it's a very ambiguous ending, Wild Swans, that you give it, with the stepmother has apparently changed. Again, I think we can talk about these things because if people are reading them for the plots, maybe they're reading them in the wrong kind of way, if there is a wrong kind of way. But she falls pregnant and then she she transforms herself into a hare and, and goes and leaves the king, the father of Bernin. Yes, and why wouldn't you really? Because um, I think during the time that she was with him, she did love him. But he couldn't trust her enough to um, share his children with her. So he was quite happy to marry her, but never to trust her with his children. She showed no malice at all towards anybody until her heart cracked. And then she has a wonderful time with the wild white hares, I think, in the woods. So it might be his child that she's carrying, but it might be a hare child anyway. It's fascination with transformation that I have. I think because when I was a child, I kind of didn't want to be human. You know, people would ask me, what, what do you want to be when you grew up? And and when I got my head around the fact that you had to grow up, um, I would think, well, you know, I want to be a bear. And you write so sensually about the, you know, the, the smell of the feathers in, of the doves or the swans in Wild Swans or the amazing bear in East of the Sun, who is, you know, is obviously a, an enchanted character that ch- changes into a prince. But I always feel that you you rather preferred him when he was a bear. Yeah, yeah. I always preferred in Beauty and the Beast. I was always disappointed that she'd fallen in love with this creature and then he turned into a man and it was a bit like, oh, never mind. The other, the other thing on it that really struck me, in, in certainly in The Wild Swans, is you're obviously there's lots of dreams and there's lots of both of these both of these women have to go through a lot of loss and a lot of pain in the stories before they reach the end. But there's a particular quality to um, Eliza's story where she has to not speak for a long period of time in order to basically to restore her brothers to their human state. They've been transformed into swans. And that thing of silence is interesting because at first, the silence works in her favour. Everybody projects positive things onto her. But then there's a malicious character who starts to spread rumours about her, which, of course, she can't. I just thought that was a very interesting... It felt to me that you were, you were, you were trying to say something interesting about, about women and their role in, in story and their role in culture and their silent, their silent witness. Yeah, it's partly about silence. But I became fascinated during that period by the idea of silence I would actually just I was knitting at the time and I would take my knitting up the hill and just sit for half an hour knitting without speaking Um, Eliza does it for years and she can't say a word she can't utter a word at all she can't make a sound if she does then all her brothers will die and there is so little silence in our world at the moment it's really hard to find a place that's silent. Even where I live, you know, just as this podcast was uh, beginning, the lawnmowers started up in the holiday cottages next door. Most of the day I've just been listening to the, the sound of ravens' wings going overhead and the sheep in the fields next door. But silence is it's a rare commodity. And silence with humans is very rare. Usually, I think if if you don't have a voice, if you don't speak, 
people will say your words for you. That happens a lot with women. There's a texture to silence. You say at the beginning of the world's forms, the she learns the many textures of silence, and she learns to listen, mm. which is another another skill. Yeah. Well, I need that one more. I need I need less of the speaking and more of the listening. Always, always. I think I need to learn to throw a small question out and then sit back and listen. I'm curious as to how why, why the books came as a pair. East of the Sun, I wrote. Um, and then I submitted it to many, many publishers for seven years. And I got rejection letter after rejection letter for seven years. And then I took it to a publisher. At the time, I was working with Francis Lincoln. And um, they, they did picture books. They didn't do longer books. But my editor there, Janetta, she read it. And she said, yes, yeah, I, I want to publish this. So I illustrated it. And it sold out of its first edition in about a week. And then it went into seven editions, which was rather nice. But in the meantime, the publisher had been taken over by a bigger press and my relationship deteriorated. And I think the best thing I can say is that eventually I got the rights back on all my books and then took them out to other publishers. I did take them to other people before Unbound. But one of the best days in my publishing career was the day that I walked into the Unbound offices with these books and all the things that I wanted for them. The answer was yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it was including, you know, everywhere I'd been, people said, um, oh, well, we've got our own designer. And I said, yes, but, you know, Alison and I just, we would get each other in this. It would be like me going to a publisher and they say, oh, well, we've got our own writer. And I'm going, yes, but I work with Robert McFarlane. They go, oh, no, we've got our own writer who will write the books for you. You know, but and, and I think it's so rare that people see design for what it is, which is such an integral part of a book and Alison has gone through these books word by word and she's set the words like images in a way as well as the images alongside each other the pace of the the she allows it to breathe so where it needs just space there is space but the books you you fill them with with wildlife yeah um, you fill them with always birds birds I'm really struggling at the moment because I'm doing a book of birds <laughs> and birds have usually been in the background of all my books and yeah. now they are center stage flying through the yeah and it's oh no what do I put in the background oh. <laughs> other birds and there's some, also I have to say in um there's some beautiful moths in the wild swans as well can you can you tell that um the character that kind of took over wild swans was the stepmother with her crown of moths and I, yes she needs her own book at some point well i thought that and i also there's there's that marvelous transformation scene which i think you write beautifully what one of the things i really like when people illustrate is that it would be very difficult to illustrate eliza when she's been enchanted and her teeth have been blackened i mean and you do that you, you do it to an extent but you don't try and make her look as monstrous as as the text makes her sound See, I, I don't think of her as being monstrous. That is the look I aspire to. You love that, I know. I mean, that's like a wish fulfilment. That, um, that's when she's at her most beautiful, I think. Um, and her most powerful, I think, maybe. Yeah. But I do think both of the books, they don't really end. They kind of begin at the end. 
um, and my hope for a reader is that there's a life outside the book, so you would wonder what happens what happens to the stepmother? Where is she? Is she still in her wild hair form? Is she person? What happens to Eliza and the prince? Can they kind of get over this burning scene? What's it like every time he strikes a match around her? Because uh, <laughs> I wouldn't be so forgiving if somebody had tried to burn me at the stake, I have to say. <laughs> no, it's a very, it's pretty shocking scene, that scene. Yeah. And then there's also the fascination of, you know, uh, there's, there's the thing about people not listening to Eliza because she's silent, but also she never asks the boys whether they want to stay swans. Yeah. And her youngest brother, who has always loved flight, didn't quite dodge the shirt well enough at the end. So there is another book there where he the half man half bird book and does he ever does he ever return to to the to, to fly again? It's it's really beautiful. I mean, so that's a kind of let's say indeterminacy that you quite like that you don't want to owe. Mm. You take that to a whole different level with your book, The Unwinding, which is the book we published last year, which is a braided together series of kind of narratives and reflections i mean it's not really a story is it no and yes <laughs> it's many stories there's the stories for the unwinding lived in the images for the most part and every time you look at the images you could make a new story if you wanted to the words that live alongside the pictures are almost catalysts for storytelling really and it was about halfway through the book that I realised that it would be quite a good idea to remove all the words in what I call my most radical editing job ever and have the book that runs alongside it called The Silent Unwinding, which is like a silent movie, really. It's the same book, but without any of the words. So into that space, you can write your own words or you can draw your own pictures or even do both at the same time. And people have really responded to it. We've had a most incredible, um, uh, people have shared online their finishing or taking of Jackie's images and adding their own illustrations and words. I wish we could say we've been incredibly clever to have thought this up as being the perfect antidote to people suddenly finding themselves in lockdown and having much more time on their own to think and reflect and to listen, all the things that we've talked about that are important. But the unwinding became almost like a sort of, for a lot of people, I think, quite a talismanic book through lockdown because it encouraged that. Mm. Um, you, you say it started as a sort of a pillow book. Do you want to just say what, what a pillow book is? Yeah, I used to write a blog years ago and it was partly a way for me to learn to write. And somebody said to me one day, oh, your, your blog just reminds me of the pillow book of Cy Shonagan. And I thought, oh, I wonder what that is. I'll go and, I'll go and have a look. And I found this amazing thousand-year-old diary of, I guess it's attention, isn't it? It's paying attention to different things. The fact that her words spoke to me through a century was just astonishing. So a pillow book is like a small collection of writing that you would tuck underneath your pillow and maybe you would add to it yourself or maybe it was just for reading, yeah. But there was a kind of a sense that it, it was there was some degree of calming, solace, 
that it was something that would enter your dreams, feed your unconscious. Yeah, and I think at the time I was aware that the world was quite an anxious place. I had no idea that things were going to become far more anxious over time. I live in in quite a, a blessed little bubble in my studio. And when I venture out of it, which I do less and less these days, <laughs> I find the world to be quite a chaotic space. So what I wanted to try and do is I always think of books as being a bit like theatres. And I was trying to make a very small theatre prayer book, place of calming, place of peace within the pages, within the covers, place of dreams, place of stillness. Which I think is is what a lot of people have responded to in the book, but also in the silent book as well. It's just there is something incredibly liberating about just looking at a sequence of images and like a sort of build your own adventure. It's a tell your own story through the images that are there on the page. Yeah, I hope it invites people in. Um, some people have said they couldn't possibly write in it because it was too intimidating. Yeah. But I, I think most people manage to... When, once you start, then it's becomes easier it's like everything else you know when you're writing a book the hardest thing to do is do the first few words we should say that you're this is obviously going out under the auspices of the birmingham literary festival but you were you were born in birmingham i was it's a very long time ago it was almost 60 years ago (laughs) i was born in loveday street hospital which they shortly after my birth they knocked down but it was too late because i was out in the world by then and there was no stopping me, really. And then there are what you called once the Hollywood years, because I lived in Hollywood until I was four. That's Hollywood near Bromsgrove, just for yeah. Those people. And and my Hollywood was um, I remember snow, baked potatoes, a cardigan with a zip on and a hood that I absolutely adored. Mostly snow, um, you know, rolling snowballs in the garden that were bigger than me. <laughs> It's interesting. There's so much snow in your in your work. You love, yeah. you love I love, love snow, snow, and I live in one of the least snowy parts of Britain, really. Yes, because that's that's salt in the air. It's not great for it. Do, yeah. Did you um, did you always draw? I always did draw as as much as I can remember. Um, I think I probably came out of the womb with a crayon in my hand. I certainly went into, um, when I had both my children, I took my um, sketchbooks into hospital, foolishly thinking that while I was in labour, I could do a little bit of drawing. (laughs) And then when I was six years old, I watched my dad drawing a lapwing. And I guess I didn't really think I want to be an artist because, you know, I didn't know about jobs and things. But what I wanted to do is to be able to do that thing that I was watching him do, which was like alchemy which is taking a blank piece of paper and making a bird land on it using a pencil. That's kind of what I've been aiming for all my life, really. And it is kind of alchemical, I think, watching you draw paint. I mean, I've watched you paint foxes live, and it's astonishing how... In fact, I've watched you... (laughs) The most astonishing thing I think I've ever seen, watching you paint with... Two foxes simultaneously with paintbrushes in, in your left and your right hand. Yeah, I'll tell you what would be even more miraculous is, is painting them tr- and then they come to life. That well, would be good. more of that anon. We'll, yeah. we'll, 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 we'll talk <laughs> about that in a moment. But you do, you obviously, we've talked about paying attention and looking at things more closely. I mean, you, you tend to draw 
from nature, you tend to draw the birds, the flowers, the moths, the butterflies, the plants that surround you in a kind of in a in a very very precise and and accurate way. And yet they seem to have. I mean, you have this capacity, I think, to make them feel animated. Is I mean, is that important? Are you trying to capture some sort of spirit when you're painting something? Yeah, I'm going for the soul, really. Um, always. Um... And and that may stem back to me once asking a vicar whether animals had souls, and he said no, and that was it. Then I was done with Christianity forever. <laughs> and I I think everything, every painting that I do is just chasing chasing a creature's soul, not in order to capture it, but just to show it, to try and um, to try to show the sacred in life, I guess. It's what is most important to me is that the rights of life, the rights of all life. Yeah. Um, it's an understanding that we need to come to, and if we don't, we then it is to our peril. I think because everything is so interdependent. You know, I I grew up at the time when um, there there was this kind of Christian dominance with man at the top and everything else underneath. And I think it never made any sense to me. The only way the world made sense to me was through First Nations stories where all life was equal, where there was a balance, where every action had a reaction, where you honoured the tree that you cut down, you never took more than you needed. And you try to put back, and also thinking forward for generations. That's what is so needed. And that more and more, I think those are the stories that we need to tell. So that's what I guess I'm trying to do in my paintings. In lockdown, though, you started on a project which doesn't involve painting at all. It involves what some people might think is the kind of the opposite of typing. It involves old typewriters. It does. Yeah. It's. Mm, it. It. It has curious roots, I guess. It's called Featherleaf Bark and Stone. So it sounds like you're, it's a, a deeply kind of natural, very safe Jackie Morris territory. But in fact, you're typing directly onto squares of gold leaf and then photographing those. Yeah. And so everything that is written, there is an attention to every single word. I know in Western culture there is there's a almost like an antagonism between words and images. Words seem, I think, to have a dominance over images. Usually, if a book is illustrated, it's like I hear so often the lost words described as Robert McFarlane's book with illustrations by Jackie Morris. This it's a a, a real imbalance. Um, never, by the way, by Robert. He he would never say that, but. I think we fail to realise that words are actually just simply and only images. Yeah, 26 images make the alphabet. And what fascinates me about that is that you have these 26 images, but they build worlds. They build characters that you can fall in love with. They build places that you want to go to. So in the typing on a typewriter, it's a very different experience to typing on a computer. Um, it is that one letter at a time. And the attention that you have to pay, especially if you're typing on gold leaf, because you can't go back and rub it out. 
it's quite it really focuses the mind yeah it's extraordinary so it's like a collection almost of poems or meditations but at the end of the book you even start typing up directly onto feathers and leaves and bark well i just started to think you know i had some feathers and i thought what what's what would happen if i put that into my typewriter and you know in the age of photoshop where you can type onto a feather really easily I thought no I want to put it in my typewriter and I was putting leaves from trees and silver birch bark and typing on it again you know you need to be quite accurate in your typing so it'd be like it, 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 I guess it'll be like a collection of each one is in a way and it's individual independent artwork hmm. but they do thread somehow together yeah and I, I'm not really sure what it is. When asked to describe it, I'm not sure what it is. But for me, it was my new form of unwinding and calming my soul at a time when life was very chaotic for me. I'd lost my father. My brother-in-law had killed himself. Yeah. It was lockdown. It was extremely dramatic. The weather inside my head was not good. And it was a, a therapy. <laughs> You talked about it also as, as navigation. And one of the beautiful things is you thread through the book, there are some labyrinths with precise coordinates on. Do you want to explain what that is? Because that's the stone bit of the book, isn't it? Yeah. Well, years ago, I started picking up beautiful stones off the beach, stones that have been carved over time by the sea and the sand, all the elements. And I would take them home and I would paint onto them the shape of a labyrinth, which is a beautiful and ancient symbol. And then I'd take them back to the beach and I'd leave them. And sometimes I would leave them above the high tide line and sometimes I wouldn't. Sometimes I'd put them into water. That was always a lovely one. If you put them into water, sometimes where people step over stones, so they would look down to see where their feet were going. Mm. And sometimes I would know that they would be found and other times they... I'd just it's a giving back really so I've, I've done that for quite a long time and because I use transfer leaf you have a, a tissue of gold that is left so I started putting the map coordinates of where I left them onto these traces and those kind of move through the book as a navigation the whole thing is a navigation really it's like a compass a sort of yeah, spanning, yeah beautiful why I do these things I don't know. I've recently begun painting feathers onto stones, and I love the heavy light thing. You know, the feather, whenever you hold a feather in your hand, it always, you can feel it trying to get back in the sky. It has this, any breath of air that goes underneath it tries to lift it up. So to paint with gold leaf, again, you have this thinness, this lightness. And if you use loose leaf as well, it dances in the slightest breath of air put it onto stone and you have a heavy light and I, I rather like that as well. So that's Feather, Leaf, Bark and Stone which is published next May but people can pre-order on the Unbound site but there's also another project which you've, you've launched yeah, which is completely different which is, which is painting yeah. which is we hope is going to be a huge collection of we're calling them accordion books because they are basically a concertino, eight panels, and you stretch them out, and it's a, a tumbling string of foxes. Or, no. <laughs> you can't do this without moving your hands. I tend to wave mine in a zigzag line. Um, 
But if you think of the shape of a, a screen, it's almost like a folded screen when you shut it up. Yeah. Yeah, so I painted using paints that are years and years ago, color men started to make these little paint cakes, which are made of um, pigments and they have honey in them and they have gum arabic and it's watercolors before that artists had to make their own paints um, and these revolutionized paintings and you can still buy antique boxes of paint and i have about seven now i think so these paints have been asleep for nearly 200 years, but you can wake them up with a little kiss of water. <laughs> and that's what I've been using to paint these accordion foxes into books. And I began doing it as practice for performances that I do with spell songs. So it's teaching myself how to paint the shape of a fox. Amazing. I'm actually going to be in Birmingham in January at the Symphony Hall with my band as I like to call them, <laughs> spell songs. And will you be painting? Will you be painting foxes and otters live on stage? I will probably be painting both. One of the, I have to say that when we did Birmingham Town Hall, that was the biggest round of applause I've ever had for going on stage. So thank you very much. It was fantastic. But, um, yeah, foxes and otters. Jackie, it's been wonderful talking to you. It's been quite nice talking to you as well, John. Yeah. Yeah, we've had it. We've, um, so I, I should say East of the Sun, West of the Moon and The Wild Swans by Jackie, published by Unbound in October. And then if you're interested in Featherleaf, Bark and Stone and her, the first two accordion books, I think we're planning to do maybe six next year and then we'll see where we get to. But Fox and Otter are the first two. They're all available for pre-order on the Unbound site. Jackie Morris, thank you. I'm John Mitchinson. You are Jackie Morris. I am. <laughs> and this is the end of the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Birmingham Lit Press Presents podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to tell us about it. Leave us a review or a rating and find us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at Fest. You can download our latest podcast episodes every Thursday from all the places you would normally get your podcasts and find transcripts of our episodes in the show notes. The Birmingham Lit Fest Presents podcast is produced by 11C and Birmingham Podcast Studios for Writing West Midlands.